Good morning, Chapel Hill. I want to particularly welcome those who are here this morning as our nominations for great workers. Uh, We've been talking a lot about work on Sunday morning for the last few weeks, and one of the things I asked our church to do is to keep their eyes open for great workers in this, in this community. And some of you are here. You came, some of you, to our, our uh, breakfast this morning that we hosted for you, and we, I just want you to know we, we want absolutely nothing from you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to stand up, but, but we just want you to know that other members of your community saw you at work. And they thought you were pretty remarkable and that you contribute to the, to the welfare of our community by the way that you serve us. So thank you. And uh, if you're here, I just want you to receive our applause as a thank you for your good service. I also want to share some great family news, some Chapel Hill family news. After a nationwide search... I'm pleased to tell you that our elders this last week voted unanimously to call Dr. Bill McDonald to be our new pastor. He's going to be our pastor of Renewal. He and his wife, Jenny, you see a picture of them up there. They are great. He uh, he loves the church. He has a passion for Celebrate Recovery. Um, He is a great communicator. He's going to be a wonderful new pastor for us. He's also a classical guitarist, which is going to be fun. And, uh, and they're just great. They're crazy, wonderful folks. And, uh, and they're going to be with us in mid-August. So I've told them already what a, a sweetheart church you are. And uh, I know you're going to greet them warmly. And if someone has a mother-in-law unit that you can put them up in for a few months, uh, they're going to be scrambling to kind of get things arranged. But they can't wait to get here. And I'm telling you that they are coming from a less-than-sweetheart church situation. So not only are you going to be blessed by them loving and caring for you, They're going to be blessed by being a part of a church that's going to love and care for them. Nod your heads vigorously if that's what you promise to do. We're going to welcome them and we're going to love them and then we're going to say, they're going to just, they're going to fit right in. So that's awesome. You know, for some of you, you're probably too young to remember this, but after World War II, Germany and the city of Berlin particularly was divided right in half. If you could imagine, there's a war here in Gig Harbor. At the end of the war, the, the city is divided right in a half, and, and a wall is built right to the middle, a huge wall with machine guns and, and minefields and so forth. That's what happened to the city of Berlin. Suddenly, what was one city was divided into two cities. And on one side was west, the free uh, East Berlin. On the other side was controlled by the communists, by the Soviet, uh, by the Soviet forces. In uh, 1985, I had a chance to visit Berlin. Which is, it was a surreal experience to, to be in this beautiful free city on one side and then to see this huge wall that completely surrounds the city. And, uh, and you can't go in without permission. The, and more importantly, those who lived there couldn't come out. I had the opportunity to go into East Berlin, to communist East Berlin, because I wanted to meet with Christians there. And so I did, and I went in, and I, uh, and I met with them, and it struck me profoundly as I, as I listened to their hearts, listened to them separated from loved ones, uh, the, the monstrous oppression that that wall represented, the evil that that wall represented, how it divided families, divided lives. It was a scar across the city. It was a great day when that, when that wall fell down, was taken down finally. It strikes me in these recent uh, weeks as we've been talking about work, there's a sense in which the church has built a similar wall. We've we've built up a wall that separates Sunday from Monday. 
that separates our worship from our work, that separates the, the sacred from the secular. The church has been largely responsible for telling our people there's two different worlds. And, and it has contributed, I think, to brokenness on both sides of that wall. On the, on the work world side, we have deprived the, the work world of the opportunity to be influenced by, by Christians who will help that place not be a place of idolatry that it can become. And on the other side of the wall in the church, we've deprived ourselves of the privilege of, of being able to bless our people and say, the thing you do five days a week, six days a week, that, that is God's call for you. That is a blessing for you. And, and we call you to, to stand to that and to em- embrace it. Not only that, we've, I think we've stolen from ourselves the, the, the blessing of, of having people take their gifts and their talents and their abilities that they use during the work week and plug them into the kingdom. It's a terrible wall that we've divided. And I hope you've had the sense in these last few weeks that we're trying to tear that wall down. We're saying there should be no wall between the sacred and the secular, between Sunday and Monday. There should not be a wall like this. We have learned that, in fact, God loves work. He is a working God. He created created us to work. We are fulfilled when we are working in an area of our passions and our giftedness. And God is blessed by that. We've learned that it's an opportunity. Our work world is an opportunity for us to stand and to witness by both our word and our deed to our love of Jesus. And that makes a difference in the world. This last week, uh, Pope Francis tweeted, dang it, even the Pope tweets, this is, I feel so lame, the Pope tweets, and I, you know. But he, he tweeted this, how, how I wish everyone had decent work. It is essential for human dignity. We've talked about the, the, the brokenness that can enter our lives when we don't have a chance to, to do the thing we were created to do. We talked about that last week. So work was created by God to be good. Work should be good. But in this broken world, work isn't always good, is it? It isn't always what it should be. In fact, work can become idolatrous. There's a word that we have for that idolatry. What do we call it? Workaholism, Right? We, we can become so obsessed, so, so drawn into our work world, we can reach the point where we end up worshiping it and where it becomes the most important thing in our life. Or we can reach a point where we see, feel controlled by it. There's a tyrant over us and we don't have any, anything else but that in our life. And we end up, well, we end up feeling like rats in a race. We end up feeling like, well, you've seen images like this, you know. Isn't that the way some of you feel in your work? You know, right next to your partner and just, just running away, running away, running away and getting nowhere. I want to talk about the rat race today. I want to talk about what it is that allows what should be a blessing of work to turn into a, a crazy, destructive, frantic rat race. And to start it off, I want to read a passage that's going to sound kind of familiar. And it ought to because it actually comes from the same section of the Gospel of Mark that we've been looking at these last couple of weeks. So would you turn with me please to Mark chapter 9. We're going to start a little ways into verse 31. You'll be smart enough to figure it out. Jesus is meeting with his disciples all by himself. They're, They're in private conversation. And he's about to share a very deep thing here. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say. John 9, verse 31. 
Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Then they came to Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum was kind of his home base. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child and had him stand among them. And then taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, would you please take these words and make them come to life for us? There are people today who are running their rat race. They need to be set free from that. God, maybe you will reveal through this, your word, something that will help them find real peace, real fulfillment, real joy. That's what we ask you to do, Lord. Only you can do it. And we invite you into our presence now in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what, according to several people that I've talked to who are kind of big in this world, the two of the greatest sources of conflict are in the workplace? It's kind of, it might blow your mind. Here they are. Offices and parking places. Offices and parking places. And you say, what? How can, how can that be? One office is often no different than the other, but it's not a matter of how the office is decorated. It's how close the office is to the places of power. And it's where you are in that line. Who's closer to the power seat and who's farther away from you? Just like the, the parking places. It's not a matter of who, how far it is to the workplace. It's how much closer your parking place is than Fred's parking place. This is all the toxin of comparison. There are three toxins that we're going to look at this morning. Comparison, consumption, and chaos. And the first one is comparison. Who's closer to the boss? Who, who's farther than I am? It, this, this toxin of comparison corrupts every workplace. Because behind what seem like silly little issues... Where is my office compared to others? Where is my parking space compared to others? What is my title compared to others? Behind all of those things lies this very real and very deep and a very emotional issue, and that is, what am I worth? What is my value in this place? But it's not just that. It's not, am I important? The way it ends up getting twisted is, am I more important? More important than Joe, more important than Fred, more, than, more important than Susie. It is a terrible, toxic game of comparison. And we see it in our story today, didn't we? The disciples are walking along the road. Jesus is leading the way. They're kind of lagging behind because they're engaged in this heated conversation. You might wonder, well, what could be so passionate? What are they talking about? Is it, was it the last sermon that Jesus preached? Maybe it was their amazement at the last miracle that Jesus did. Nope. What are they talking about? They're arguing about who is the greatest. 
I'm clearly the greatest, Peter says. After all, Jesus named me Rocky. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. I'm the greatest. John says, you are not the greatest. I am the beloved. Jesus loves me most. And so they're going back and forth on the road talking about who is the greatest. A couple of weeks ago, do you remember when James and John, they came to Jesus and they tried to twist his arm behind his back to manipulate Jesus to give him the place, to give them the places of power. James and John, they wanted to be on the right and on the left of Jesus when he was in his authority, in his power. Do you remember that story? Did you also remember that Peter, who was the chief of the apostles, was nowhere to be found in that conversation? Why is that? Because that conversation took place after this conversation. They're walking along in the road, and James and John start to get nervous. They start to get nervous that, that maybe they don't have the place of influence and power closer to Jesus than Peter and the rest of them. And so they decide this scheme. We're going to go to Jesus and we're going to work out where our offices will be next to the Lord. They wanted to be more important, more important than Peter, more important than the disciples. And it's all about comparison. We do this all the time. We compare ourselves to others all the time. And am I not right? It is toxic. It is toxic to yourself. It's toxic to the work environment. And I've got to say, I think, I mean, there are a lot of embarrassing stories in the Bible. I don't think you can find many that are much more embarrassing than this. They sit down at the house in Capernaum and Jesus says, um, guys... I noticed that you were having a little argument while we were walking on the road. What was that all about? As if he didn't know. He knew exactly what it was about. Can you hear? They they just, uh, uh. It it was nothing, Jesus. How about that hummus? Wasn't that dinner great? I mean, they're doing everything they can to distract the Lord from this. It was so humiliating. And here's what makes it even more embarrassing. Think about what the conversation was just before they're walking on that road and fighting it out. Do you remember what Jesus is telling them? He says, guys, I just want to warn you, I'm about to be arrested, and I'm going to be tortured, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again too, but I just want you to know that's what's coming. It is so breathtakingly insensitive and dense Guys, just want to warn you, I'm about to be killed. Yeah, whatever, Jesus. Peter, you are such a big shot. Do you see it? Do you see how crazy this is? How can they go from Jesus saying, guys, I I want to share with you the hardest thing I'm going to ever tell you. I'm about to be killed. And they say, whatever, whatever. We're busy figuring out who's the most important. Who's more important than the other guy? It's poison. Comparison. It starts on the playground. I'm, I can beat you up. I'm smarter than you. My dad can beat your dad. My mom can beat up your mom. And it carries right on into our youth, into our student life, into adulthood. It never stops. So what is the antidote for the toxin of comparison? How do we avoid getting into this bidding war over our relative worth? And the answer, according to Jesus, is you move yourself to the end of the line. You don't look for ways to be better than others. You assume you're a lesser. When you move to the end of the line, you steal the opportunity for anyone else to push their way in front of you. There, ain't no, there is nobody in front of you. 
I mean, they're all in front of you. You're in the back. Steal that opportunity away from them. Jesus' formula for advancement in the kingdom is not a, it's not a very good formula as far as our culture is concerned. Because here's what Jesus says. You want to be first? Make yourself what? Last. That's my approach, he says. You want to be first? Then make yourself last. Give up your place in line. Give up your place of honor. Give up your place. Let others have it. And in so doing, you're going to be great in the kingdom. You'll be first in the kingdom if you're willing to do that. And then he illustrates it in a most unusual way at the time. We, we look at the story and say, isn't that sweet? Because what does Jesus do? He says, there's, there's, he, there, there, here's some kids here. He has one of these kids stand up. And what does he do? He grabs him up, says he sweeps him up into his arms. He says, I want to tell you... And, I want If you're not willing to welcome this little kid, then you won't welcome me. And when you welcome a kid like this, then you welcome not only me, but the one who sent me. And you say, what does that have to do with anything that he was just talking about? Here's exactly what it has to do. At the time, kids were considered nothing more than adults in the making. Today, we have our children up front leading in us in worship and our hearts are warmed and we think, isn't that wonderful? But in those days, kids were nothings. They were nobodies. They were supposed to be kept out of the way. It was a job of the, of the women to keep the kids out of the men's way. Because until they could become adults and be productive, they had nothing to offer. They were nobodies. And, and men did not sweep children up into their arms, especially... A, a well-known rabbi. We think, isn't that sweet? But in fact, at the time, people would have looked at Jesus and said, what is he doing that's unbecoming, that's inappropriate for a rabbi to be playing with children? But Jesus is making a point to these guys who have been arguing about who is the most important. Jesus says, I want you to behave like you are the least important. Don't act like a somebody. I want you to act like you're a nobody. And you treat nobodies like they're somebody. That's the way you'll be great in my kingdom. That's the way you'll avoid the toxin of comparison. Now, I'm not saying for you to unrealist, to have an unrealistic, self-critical view. The, the antidote to comparison is not self-loathing. The antidote to comparison is Confidence. Confidence. Confidence in who God has made you to be. Confidence in the Holy Spirit at work in you. Confidence in the, the gifts that He has given you and the call that He has placed upon your life. A, holy, a healthy dose of Holy Spirit confidence allows you to say, I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know what I've been called to. And I am free to step to the end of the line because when the Lord wants to exalt me, He will move me right down. Comparison is the first toxin of the rat race. Here's a second. Consumption. Would you say that? Would you say it like you're listening? There we go. One of the blessings of work is it allows us to buy stuff. And when you look in the Bible, you have permission to do that. Jesus blesses people who work hard and make money and buy things. We have a chance when we work to buy a beautiful home. We have a chance to buy a nice car. We have a chance to pay for a college education. We have a chance to buy some toys, as long as you don't put them on the credit card and max it out, right? I mean, Dave Ramsey would not be happy with you. But as long as you're not maxing out your credit card, it's okay. 
And so when we work hard and we are recognized for our hard work and we get promotions and we get pay raises, we're able to buy more things. That's kind of nice. The problem is it becomes an addiction and it is a peculiarly American addiction. Our culture is addicted to consumption. It's true in beautiful, perfect Gig Harbor, but as a matter of fact, it was true in Galilee too. I want to read another story that comes from Luke 12. If you want to flip over to it, it's Luke 12, verse 13. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He had so many crops, he didn't know what to do with them. He said, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down all of my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. So take life easy. Drink, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. If this doesn't speak to our Gig Harbor lifestyle, I don't know what does. The building of bigger and bigger barns. I know I'm not the only one who's driven by what looked to me like a perfectly good house on a lot. And seeing them tearing it down in order to build a humongous house on the lot that is squeezed into that, into that space. And you say, really? For so many of us, there is never a point. Hear this. For so many of us, there is never a point where we utter that rarely used English word. You know what it is? Oh, you do know what it is. Enough. Say it. I have enough. We never believe that. We never reach the point where we can say, I have enough. Instead, the motto of our culture is what? More. More. I want more. I got to have more. Whatever I have, I want more. However big my house might be, I want it bigger. However nice my car might be, I want it nicer. However long my boat is, I want it longer. And it is our jobs that, that feed this monster of consumption. Because even with good salaries, even with the raises that we get as we work hard in our place of employment, we don't save, we don't give, we spend, spend, spend to worship the God of consumption. So what is the gospel alternative? What is the gospel alternative to this toxin in the rat race to consumption? It's contentment. Would you say it? Contentment. Contentment is such a great word. Contentment is reaching the point where we can say with all sincerity, I have enough. I don't need one thing more. Paul once wrote to the Philippians, and by the way, when he wrote this letter, he was in prison waiting to be executed. Paul wrote these words to the Philippians. I have learned to be, what's the word? 
content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Are you content? As you look at your life, can you say, I don't need another thing. I am content. That's the antidote to the toxin of consumption. So you have comparison versus confidence. You have uh, uh, consumption versus contentment. And then I want to offer one more poison in the rat race. Chaos. Would you say it? Much of today's workplace runs at a crazy high-paced tempo and it wears people down, wears families down. Early mornings and late nights and skipped days off and skipped vacations or vacations that might not have well been vacations because dad's on the cell phone the whole time. And I will say that I have been guilty of that. Chapel Hill can be a place of too much frenzy. And I'm the chief rusher. And I acknowledge that. But when we look to Jesus, we discover someone who knew how to work without being hurried. He knew how to rest. He never rushed. Jesus never rushed. He took his time. There's one more story I want to read this morning. It comes out of Mark 1. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Here's what Mark writes. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions, that's Peter, went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! I love this. We are one chapter into the gospel. And the disciples are already bossing Jesus around. What in the world are you doing up here on a mountain praying to the Father in the early morning hours? There are people looking for you. We've got you scheduled out for the day. There are lepers to be healed, demons to be cast out. You don't have time to be wasting here. But Jesus would not be rushed. He never hurried. Jesus never hurried. When he got the news up in Galilee that his friend down in Bethany, Lazarus, was sick unto death, instead of rushing right off to meet with him, Jesus delayed four days. Do you remember what happened to Lazarus? He died. When Jesus was walking through town, he was pulled aside by Jairus, who was a big shot in the community. He was with a synagogue leader. If Jesus is going to make a mark in, this, in the community, he really ought to, to know how to suck up to these, these leaders. And Jairus comes up and says, my daughter is, is sick and she's dying. Will you come? Jesus says, sure. So they start walking towards Jairus' house. What happens? They get interrupted. A woman who's been hemorrhaging for as long as that girl's been alive reaches out. She touches the garment of Jesus, the, the hem of his garment. And in the moment that she does so, she's healed. And Jesus feels the power go out of him. He stops. Turns around and says, who touched me? And he pauses there to minister to this woman who's been an outcast in society. He raises her up to health and to a place of dignity. She's back in to community. In the meantime, you know what happens to Jairus' daughter? She dies. 
Of course, in both cases, when Jesus finally shows up, what's he do? He raises him back up to life. He finds Lazarus dead. He raises Lazarus up to life. Finds Jairus' daughter dead. Raises Jairus' daughter up to life. But he did so on his timetable. He was not going to be rushed. Again and again, we see Jesus refusing to be drawn into the frantic chaos of his surroundings. He set a tempo for his life that allowed time for every important relationship. And by the way, it ensured his own good health. Jesus was human. He could have developed heart disease. He could have had stress headaches. But he did not because he lived in perfect tempo. So the gospel counter to chaos is cadence. It's tempo. It's rhythm. It's pace. Cadence is the ability to say, no, I will not make one more phone call. I'm going home to dinner. No, I will not schedule one more meeting. I'm going to my kid's game. No, I'm not going to work on my Sabbath. Some of you, that's hard because you have a boss that drives you in that way and it's either quit your job or, or kind of put up with that pressure. That's tough. But for most of you, Most of you who have no cadence to your life, who are rushed and harried and hurried, it is your own darn fault. It is your calendar that you keep filling up with your stuff. You're the one that can take it out. (laughs) Tomorrow, Cindy and I are going to leave for sabbatical, and we're going to be gone for two months. Yes, who, who is right? This is a gift that your church you have given to me and every seven years it has been a blessing to my life and I do not take this lightly I know that it's a rare gift but these last three years have been hard actually moving from one denomination to another having a huge transition in staff it's been kind of exhausting and I am telling you I'm looking forward to the chance to I haven't just read a book I wanted to read in so long I've got a pile of books. I'm just going to take, I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. I'm going to rest. I'm going to ride bikes. I'm going to hang out with my wife. I can't wait. It's going to be a blessing to me. And by the way, it's going to be a blessing to us because we're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary as empty nesters on vacation. (laughs) So it's it's, it's going to bless our marriage too. Here's what I believe though. It's also going to bless you. My Sabbath is going to bless you, the church. It happens every time. Because while I'm gone, while I rest, God speaks to me, God stirs things up into me, and I come back and, baby, you better put on the seatbelts because we're going to rock and roll. I have had friends who've asked me, how in the world have you stayed in one church for what will next September 13th be 27 years? How have you done that? One of the reasons, I think, is because you have been so kind to say, every seven years, we want you to take a sabbatical. We want you to get away, rest, study, think, pray, dream, and come back to us restored. And that is what I've done. And you, by your kindness, have allowed me to understand what a cadence in my life can look like. The Lord calls all of us to find that in our lives. I just want you to know how grateful we are. Thank you so much for that. So that's it, the rat race. We, we, can, we can get sucked into the toxin of comparison or we can live in the confidence that is ours in Christ. We can be sucked into the consumption toxin or we can be content. We can be sucked into the chaos or 
We can live in cadence. I wonder how, how does this speak in your own life, in your work life, in your student life, in your retired, active life? Do you feel the need to compare yourself to others, to put others down so that you can be lifted up? Or do you have enough confidence about who you are in Jesus, what he's called you to do, that you can say, here, take my place in line? Do you feel the, the need to buy more and more and more stuff somehow to feed this, this monster that is never, never going to be satisfied? Or do you reach a point in your life when you say, you know what? I got enough. Have you reached a point where you said, my life is just complete chaos and it's all my own fault. I'm going to slow my life down. We've been talking these weeks about, about work and about how God can transform your view of work. How God can sanctify your work, your view of work. Some of you have changed. Uh, you've talked to me about your change of attitude, your change of behavior. Some of you have said, you know what, this has been an opportunity for us to, to take God seriously for a radical, different approach to work. I want to introduce you to two of your own folks who are going to do that. Bob and Michelle, where are you? Are you here? Ah, woo, you scared me there for a second. Bob and Michelle... Bob is an elder in the church. Bob was just a co-chair of the search committee. Bob and Michelle have both been involved in all kinds of aspects of ministry, especially ministry mission work in, in Africa. But now the Lord has called them to something else. And I wanted you to hear this because it's, it's risky in all kinds of ways. You guys are going to where? Cutter. Cutter. And Cutter is... What, a knife? or What, what is right. Cutter? It's um, a tiny little peninsula off the... Asian, or off the um, Arabian Peninsula in the Persian Gulf. Right, right next to Saudi Arabia, predominantly. Right, right. There it is. There. Yes. Predominantly Muslim. It is Muslim. What in the world are you? You're an educator, and yet you got the call to go do what in tiny little Qatar? Well, um, about two years ago, I had, I had prayed and asked God for just to drop something in my lap because I was ready for a change. And um, so in December, I got a call from... Someone who said, hey, there's going to be some people from Qatar here next week. And they wanted me to give some names of principals that might be interested in opening a new school. That would be a dual language, Arabic and English school. And it would be an inclusion model school where all special ed kids and regular ed children could come together. So that, is that different? What are, they, what are normal special so, ed kids? Right. It, traditionally, the special education students stayed home with a home tutor. It's a very wealthy country, so you can afford to have a tutor. And um, kind of an intermediary step was the same foundation started a school for just special education students. And then the next step will be to have a, more of a model like we have here in the United States where about 80% of the students are regular ed and 20% are special education. But this will be a first time this has ever first been done. First time for them. And um, it will serve as a model for the rest of the country. So we'll be doing teacher training. Teachers can come in and uh, observe what we're doing and um, for both the dual language and the inclusion and then we'll also be training teachers, and I'll be working with principals as well. So this is obviously a, a, a career opportunity, but you sense it as something more than that, right? Right. I really felt like um, it was a call from God. It was literally a telephone call out of the blue, and that at any point God could have closed the door, and he didn't. I just kept getting the interviews, and it kept progressing. So. And Bob, this is a call for you, but in a different kind of way, isn't it? What, what kind of job do you have lined up in Qatar? Uh, pool boy. Uh, <laughs> I say I've had a job of a lifetime, and this is Michelle's job of a lifetime, and it's her turn. 
so I feel called to go uh, in support of her. I do not have a job. I feel called to go, but I don't know what that will be. And so for me to say goodbye to my job at Mary Bridge as a child psychologist after 20-some years is a big deal. It's risky, isn't it, too? Uh, I mean, a little bit of risk, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was very clear that God has called us, asked us to do this. Because of our work in Africa, we thought we'd live abroad in Africa, but not in a... Um, Islamic monarch. That, that's a new uh, twist. And so uh, God is saying, this is what I have for you in this yeah. season. So when we're talking about the call of God upon your work life, this is about as real as it gets, isn't it? I thought we would want to pray. You want to pray, don't you? Nod vigorously. You want to pray. So um, would you just extend your hand to Bob and Michelle? Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these two who love you and who know they belong to you whose careers belong to you, whose gifts belong to you. And so they've said, how do you want to use us? And this remarkable, risky, unexpected opportunity has presented itself. Lord, thank you for their willingness to say yes. For Michelle, who steps into a very big and, and, and a groundbreaking experience. And for Bob, who steps into the unknown, but who equally knows this is the call from you. Bless them. Keep them safe as you will want them to be. And use them in a Muslim monarchy to proclaim the love of Jesus Christ to people who might ever, not ever otherwise know it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know you want to say thank you and congratulations to them. You know, we're wrapping this work series up. You don't have to go to Qatar to be faithful to God. But are you beginning to get the idea that right where you are, Right where you are is the call of God upon your life, that he can use you as a clerk, as a nurse, as a pilot, as a student, as a doc, as a CPA, as a garbage collector or a plumber. God can use you right where you are. And I think that the Lord wants to deliver us from the rat race that our culture would want us to, want us to buy into. And we've heard a little bit today about how that might be so. Let me pray for all of us today that God might stir something in our hearts as we, as we move past that broken down wall that separates the sacred from the secular. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the, the 13 or 1400 ministers of the gospel who are seated here today. And I thank you that they will return to their church tomorrow, their ministry tomorrow. And Lord, I pray that you would protect them from the, the rat race that the world would call them into. And for those who are feeling the need to, to puff themselves up and, and to compare themselves to others and who, who feel like they're in this competition, God, set them free from that. Let them know who they are in you and let them rest in that. Let them feel free to offer up their place in line and their, and their honor and their power and their position knowing that you are going to put them exactly where you want them to be. God, for those who are addicted to consumption, Set them free from that, Lord. Help us learn that word enough and, and to trust you and to be more generous with what the bounty that you have, have given to us. And Lord, God, there are people that, that need to slow down. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you convict them of that need? And would you help them to see it is just as sinful as any other sin to be burning yourself out, to be working your Sabbath, to, to be neglecting your soul and your life and the life of your family because you're working so hard. God, set them free and help them to find a 
peace and a pace that blesses you and blesses them. Lord, these are the things we ask of you, and only you can do that. We can't on our own strength, but we pray that you would set us free to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I uh, offer the benediction, I, I just want to say thank you again for this gift, and I want to charge you. I charge you in my absence, be faithful. You're not here because of who is in the pulpit. You're here because God has called you here to be a part of this church family. And all the more, when Daddy is gone, you should be here (laughs) faithful, caring for and supporting whoever's preaching, whoever's leading, saying, this is our church, we're going to protect it. I pray that I will come back and find you guys just rocking and rolling already before I ever show up. And it's on you. So I want you to raise your hand and say, I will be faithful. All right, I'm going to call you on it. And I saw you all raise your hand, so I'm going to remember every one of you when I get back. Following this service, we'd love to meet you if you're a newcomer. And if you have not yet joined our church, and especially if you'd like to be baptized this summer, would you please just come down? we got food for you. We'll make room for you. And I'd love to have my chance to share with you the, uh, further the mission and the culture and the call of our congregation. So please, today... Would you come and join me for a couple hours and we will share in that time together, all right? All right, raise your hands up. We need the Holy Spirit to do all of this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.